A Focus Summary of Part 2 of The Cloak Finding Petrovich drunk as he had hoped, Akaki renewed his request. But the question roused Petrovich from his stupor enough to insist the cloak was irreparable and a new one must be made. Accepting the impossibility of avoiding the purchase of a new cloak, Akaki then dispiritedly contemplated how he would possibly pay for it. He was already in debt, had more urgent expenses, and wouldn't be helped even by a generous raise. Petrovich might be persuaded to reduce the price, but even half the amount was far more than he could pay. He did have forty rubles, scrupulously saved over a period of many years. He decided that if he deprived himself of necessities like tea, candles, and new shoes for at least a year, he would perhaps be able to double that amount. At first, he found it hard to accustom himself to these deprivations, but over time he grew used to them, and his life even began to seem fuller from the idea of his future cloak. His character grew firmer and his gait less wavering. He began to have bold dreams, like adding a marten fur collar. The cloak became like a friend, a wife even, who would travel life's path with him. And once, he even became so absent-minded that he made a mistake in his copying. Every month he had a conference with Petrovich about the cloak and came home satisfied. An unexpected raise hastened the time the cloak could be acquired, and when the day arrived, his usually quiet heart began to throb. On the first day possible, he went shopping with Petrovich for some good cloth, thick cotton lining, and a catskin collar. It was the most glorious day in Akaki's life when, two weeks later, Petrovich hand-delivered the cloak. Petrovich took out the cloak with a proud expression that suggested he was sensible he had done no small deed. Akaki tried it on, found it to be perfect, paid Petrovich, thanked him, and set out in his new cloak for the department. Petrovich followed after him so that he could gaze at his handiwork from a distance. As he walked, Akaki saw nothing of the road, this time because he was conscious every second of the new overcoat on his shoulders. Arriving at the department, he confided it with special care to the attendant. Word got around quickly that the old cloak no longer existed, and everyone came to congratulate him, saying he must christen it with a party. Akaki began to grow ashamed, stood blushing for several minutes, and then tried in vain to assure them that it was not new at all. One of the officials offered to host the party himself. Akaki wanted to refuse, but all declared it would be discourteous, and in any case, he looked forward to the chance of wearing his overcoat in the evening as well. That day was a triumphant festival for Akaki, spent admiring and contemplating his new cloak rather than writing. When it grew dark, he set off for the party, traversing a sort of wilderness of deserted streets to get to the best part of the city where the official lived. The sights in this quarter were novel to him, since he had not been in the streets during the evening for years. Stopping before a shop with a risque picture in the window, Akaki looked at it and laughed, perhaps because it was utterly unfamiliar or perhaps instinctively cherished. Akaki at length reached the house of the head clerk, who lived in fine style, and found that the officials had arrived long before and already finished their first glass of tea. Having hung up his cloak, Akaki entered the room and halted awkwardly, 
not knowing what to do. The crowd received him with a shout and thronged to the anteroom to examine his cloak. He could not help but rejoice at their praise. The noise, the talk, the throng were overwhelming to Akaki, and he did not know what to do with himself. Finding it all wearisome, the more so because it was past the hour when he usually went to bed, he wanted to leave, but they would not let him. After some supper and champagne, he stole out of the room, found his cloak lying on the floor, and descended the stairs to the street. The streets were still lively, and Akaki was in a happy frame of mind. He even ran after some lady, without knowing why, then stopped short, wondering what had compelled him. Soon he arrived in the dimly lighted streets nearer his neighborhood, with not a soul to be seen. Only the tiny spark of a watchman's box could be seen glimmering from afar. He entered a dark square with a sensation of fear, as if his heart warned him of some evil. He closed his eyes as he crossed it, and when he opened them, he beheld some bearded men who accosted him and stripped off his cloak. When he recovered consciousness, he began to shout as he ran across the square toward the watchman. Sobbing, he shouted at the watchman for sleeping while he was robbed. The watchman replied that instead of vainly scolding, he had better go to the police the next day. Akaki ran home and arrived in a state of complete disorder. The mistress of his lodgings answered his frantic knocking and fell back when she beheld him. Hearing his story, she insisted that he ought to go to the district chief, whom she judged from appearances to be a good man. The next day, he did, and after being repeatedly sent away with excuses as to why the chief couldn't be seen, he threatened to make a complaint to the Department of Justice, and they finally called him. But when, after hearing the strange story, the chief began to interrogate Akaki, he became confused and left. That day, he never went near the department, and the next, he appeared in his old, shabby cloak. News of the theft spread, and someone suggested that they raise a collection, but the sum they gathered was trifling. One of them, moved to pity and resolved to help, recommended that the best thing would be for him to apply to a certain prominent personage who could greatly expedite the matter.' 